This morning's scripture comes from Luke chapter 12, verse 35 through 48. Stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning. And be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast, so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will, receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, in John Calvin's commentary on this passage, he writes that coming, the Christ's coming leaves no room for sloth. So I conducted an internet search for the word sloth, thinking, well, I might find some insight or examples of the sin of sloth. Well, what I got was pictures of, uh, of, of the animal. Sloth, a picture, uh, some descriptions there, and of course this animal is called sloth because it is so incredibly slow and seemingly lazy. Well, uh, sloths, I learned as I glanced at this page, the animal sloth moves at an average speed of 13 feet per minute. And some species of sloth spend 90% of their time motionless and they live in trees and and they're so slow that algae grows on their coat and there is a specific breed of moth that only feeds on the algae off the backs of sloths they're slow moving creatures so look at this page there was the description there was a few pictures and then there's a nice section uh, that 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 uh, most web search engines have that says people also ask, so you can have a quick reference to those questions that people search the most. And the top question, the number one question that people ask about sloths are, can a sloth 
kill you? Can a sloth kill you? Of all the questions that people could ask about this very interesting animal, the, the information that inquiring minds want to know is, can a sloth kill you? Well, I'm sure you're, if, if you're like many of the people on the Internet, you're burning with uh, anticipation to know, can a sloth kill you? Well, I'll be very slow in answering, but the answer is no, a sloth cannot kill you. Obviously, no. But apparently, from what I've learned, if you aggravate a sloth enough, it will bite you. I'm guessing you would have to place your hand in its mouth to get it to do that. Well, you know that the animal sloth cannot kill you. However, the sin of sloth can kill you. Laziness apathy or indifference to the things of God that result in unfaithfulness to the Lord is spiritually dangerous for those who profess Christ in these words as Jesus warns us. We're all tempted as believers to take a a vacation from the faith on occasion. Well, during this quarantine, perhaps it's led you to be unfaithful to the Lord. Or has it drawn you closer to the Lord? We often use difficult circumstances to justify our unfaithfulness. When God's purpose is all along in allowing difficulties in our lives is that we might more fully trust him. It's a problem for for believers and unbelievers as well. Unbelievers who are oblivious to or indifferent to the Lord are in, obviously, grave, grave danger. So, whether you're a believer, unbeliever, everyone needs the grace of this passage before us to encourage us to greater faithfulness and to shake believer and unbeliever alike out of indifference and indolence to the things of God. How can we be faithful servants dressed for action with our lamps burning, ready for the return of the Lord. Well, there's good news here in these these verses for those who desire to be faithful servants of the Lord and for those who have never even considered it. Well, how can we be these faithful servants? And, And why would we even want to be these faithful servants that are being commended here? Well, I have two things that, that I want to say this morning to that end. Uh, how can we be, or why would we want to be faithful servants? We need to remember two things. First, remember the kingdom that is promised. And secondly, remember the king who serves. The first thing that we want to remember is the kingdom that is promised. Now, in this uh, section that we're looking at this This day we are jumping into the middle of a discourse by Jesus to his disciples, so we need to put things into context. If if you go back just a few verses to verse 32, Jesus says to these disciples, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now when Jesus began his public ministry, he proclaimed that the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God was at hand. 
He taught many parables describing the nature of this kingdom. Christ came to a world broken by sin. When sin entered the world, a curse was placed on the world. Decay and death became the norm. Evil infiltrated every space in life. Well, Jesus came to usher in his kingdom, a kingdom of light and life, a kingdom that brings renewal to sinful, broken people and a broken world. He brought healing and sight and and he made things that were broken right again. In Matthew 19, 27 through 29, the same promise of verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That promise of verse 32 is fleshed out a bit more. It says there, Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. The Father's good pleasure to give you his kingdom. And it's described here. Sitting on thrones, judging Israel, judging the world even. Uh, and, and, and everyone who has been his followers will receive a hundredfold of of the things that they sacrificed. Well, there's an interesting word that gets lost in the ESV's translation of these verses, and especially, uh, well, it is in the phrase, in the new world, in the new world. Uh, when Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you have followed me, will also sit on twelve thrones. That word in the King James Version and the New American Standard Version Uh, says, in the regeneration. That's the most literal translation. The NIV is similar. It says, in the renewal of all things. The Greek word there is is palingenesia. Palingenesia. It's one of those compound words that I sometimes talk about where two words are pushed together to make uh, one word. Um, And it's only used in two places in the New Testament, here and in in Titus. Well, palingenesia means palin, again, and genesia, which you probably can pick up, but it's genesis, uh, a beginning. Genesis means beginnings. So uh, beginning again, or a new beginning, hence, as it has been translated, uh, in the regeneration or in the renewal of all things in the ESVs in the new world. When Christ returns, he's going to bring renewal, a worldwide renewal. But when he came the first time, we see in the way that he uh, healed and, and taught and, and all the things that he did, he was, bring re- he was bringing renewal. And he's going to complete that when he returns and fully sets up his kingdom. And he has promised to include his followers in that coming kingdom, which he will set up completely when he returns. So, fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure. He delights to give you the kingdom. 
So that's what he's been saying in, these, in, the, in the passage leading up to this. Since it is your Father's good pleasure to give you a kingdom one day, to totally renew everything, then don't be afraid of those who can kill the body and have nothing they can do to your soul. Your soul is eternal. And, and God in the new kingdom is going to give you a glorified body that will be perfect and you will live forever. And don't be anxious in this world about what you're going to eat or drink. God's going to take care of you and make sure you survive until you get to the end of this life and, and he will carry you home and, be with, and you will be with him forever. Your eternal destination is a place where you will be feasting forever and you will be clothed with a glorified body. So don't, don't be all fretful about what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. God will take care of you. He takes care of the birds and the, and the flowers. And don't spend all your energy accumulating wealth and material possessions to hoard. You've got a, you've got a kingdom in the future. Collecting gold in this life is of no use in Christ's kingdom. If you're one of those people that is spending all your energy collecting gold, material possessions, or, or wealth in this life, you're, you're like a person who collects asphalt. Can you imagine someone who went around collecting asphalt? Would you um, think that they were crazy for having storehouses full of asphalt? I mean, that's bizarre, of course. You would question that person's sanity. In the new heavens and new earth, the streets are paved with gold. It's the asphalt of the new heavens and new earth. It's everywhere there. It isn't anything special. It has little value in eternity in the Lord's kingdom. You see, Jesus is giving his followers in this whole section of Scripture uh, an eternal perspective on things. What is really important? Where is history going? And what should we value the most? It's progressing ever closer to the return of the Lord when he will renew all things. And, and our lives on earth are very brief in comparison to eternity. So remember that there's a kingdom coming. That's very important. When will this come about? See, we don't know. It could be any moment. Look at verse 39. We know this, or but know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. You know, wouldn't it be great to, to know when any thief was going to come and break into your house and you could just show up and, and protect your, your house? That would be easy. But of course, that's not the case. The thief shows up when you're most vulnerable and when you're not paying attention. We don't know when the Son of Man is coming again. So we must always be ready. John Henry Newman wrote this, he said, up to Christ coming in the flesh, the course of things ran straight towards the end, nearing it by every step. But now under the gospel, that course has altered its direction as regards his second coming and runs not 
towards the end, but along it, on the brink of it, and at all times near the great event, which, did it run towards it, it would at once run into it. Christ then is ever at our doors. F.F. Bruce wrote, In the Christian era, it is always five minutes to midnight. Well, Peter picked up some of the same uh, imagery and language in his first letter, in 1 Peter 1.13, where he said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your hope not on the things of this world, not on earthly goods, not on your health and safety, but set your hope squarely, completely, upon the hope that will be revealed when Christ returns. Have you set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, uh, this wonderful favor and blessing that he's going to shower that we didn't earn or deserve? Are you a part of that little flock to whom it will be the, good, uh, the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom? Are you ready for that day when the Lord will return and usher in that kingdom? Are, are you looking forward to it? Ever watchful? If the answer is yes, then continue to remember that that is your destination. That's the road you're traveling. Don't take a detour. Don't stop at a rest stop. Don't go to sleep at the wheel and end up in a ditch. Stay awake. Stay alert. Be ready. Jesus could return at any time. So we should be ready all the time. There is a palingenesia coming, a complete renewal. So remember the kingdom that is promised. The second thing that we need to remember is the king who serves. If we want to be faithful servants, yes, we need to remember that there's a kingdom and, and our hope should be there, not on the things of this earth, and that will fuel our service to the Lord. But also, remembering the king who serves fuels our faithfulness to the Lord. Now, this first parable that Jesus, he, of course, he tells two parables here and maybe even three if you include the, the thief statement. There's something not right about this first parable of Jesus. Parables are stories that are taken from real life, very commonplace uh, events that, that Jesus used to make a spiritual point. For example, uh, he told the parable of the sower and the seed. It's a very common uh, occurrence. A farmer goes out and he sows seed. Some falls on the path, some on the rocky ground, some on good soil, some amongst the thorns and weeds. And Jesus makes points about that. We can relate to uh, a woman who had ten coins and she lost one. And so she sweeps the house looking for the coin. We've all done that. And Jesus, of course, makes wonderful uh, application with that imagery. Lost sheep, 99 sheep you have, one is lost. Well, you go looking for the lost one. Again, same lesson. Accumulating wealth to put in barns that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Well, we know all about that, and, and uh, perhaps we're, we're even a, that person was even a picture of us. See, these, these ordinary occurrences are very relatable to us. 
they make sense to us. But there's something not so ordinary about this first parable. Now Jesus tells us in these first few verses that a master went to a wedding feast. Yes, that's understandable. These were wonderful celebrations uh, where there would be a lot of food uh, and, and wine and dancing and they would sometimes go on for days. And the servants don't know how long the party will last. The master's off having a good time. He, he may stay up until the wee hours of the morning. Tells us here the second or third watch. That's after midnight, before dawn. So he could show up at 3 a.m. from this wedding feast. But whenever he shows up, it's the servant's duty to be ready. They should have the lights on and they should be dressed and, and ready to take care of the master when he comes home. They shouldn't have the lights off and be in bed in their pajamas. It's their job to have the lights on and to be opening the door and taking care of the master's needs when he returns. But look at verse 37. It says, Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like any master-servant relationship that I've ever heard of. How many masters do you think who've been out uh, at a party, a wedding party, they've had some drinks, of course, in moderation, uh, they have been out dancing and celebrating and having a good time and feasting, and it is three in the morning, they're rolling in, and... Uh, you're there to greet him as one of the servants. You open the door, the lights are on, and you're ready to take care of his needs. And, and once you do so, he says, now it's your turn. You sit down at the table, and I'll prepare a feast for you. I will serve you, and you can enjoy that. You sit in the place of honor. That, that just doesn't happen in real life, I'm afraid, with masters and servants. This is not ordinary but neither is Jesus. Verse 37 tells us, the, tells us that the master will dress himself for action and have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. Now, dress for action literally means gird your loins. In those days, of course, they wore robes, long robes, and to do work meant that you, you needed to, to gird the robes up. You needed to tuck them in your belt. You needed to get them out of the way so you wouldn't trip over the skirt of the robe. And, and it's a, a way of saying you need to be ready for work. Be, as, it, as we've seen it translated here and elsewhere, dressed for action, ready to get the job done with no hindrances in, in the way. Now, as Jesus teaches these parables to his disciples and to the crowds that are around him, it will not be too much longer before Jesus will himself gird up his loins. He will dress for service, dress for action. We read about it in John 13, where it tells us there, Now before the feast of the Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given, things, given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. This is the word. He girded it around his waist. He prepared himself to serve. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? See, Peter understood that this was backwards. The master was washing the servant's feet. He should wash Jesus' feet. Jesus is the master. Jesus is the Lord. Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Now I think at that point Jesus is not just talking about washing feet. He's talking about the washing of forgiveness, the washing of, of cleansing, of spiritual cleansing. This is just a foreshadowing and a picture of what Jesus is about to do when he goes to the cross to suffer and die for sin. He's the ultimate suffering servant that was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 52 and 53. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle, wash many nations. goes on to say, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. See, Jesus was the ultimate servant, suffering servant. Suffering in our place, suffering for our sins. So that we might be washed, so that we might be cleansed, so that we might be renewed so that we might be born again. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. Now you remember earlier I told you that this word palingenesia occurs only two places in the New Testament. We've already looked at the first place in Matthew. The second is in Titus chapter 3. Titus talks about the conversion of the people to whom he's writing. For we ourselves, Paul is writing, I should say, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, 
He saved us, not works because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, palingenesia, the washing of new beginnings, and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what we've been talking about here. See, Jesus dressed for action. He became a servant so that he could bring renewal. And what he did on the cross, what was foreshadowed by the washing of the disciples' feet, he accomplished. He accomplished a beginning of the palingenesia in us. The washing of regeneration, new birth, new beginning, a renewal. Paul says that we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. All because Jesus girded his loins. He dressed for action. Have you experienced that new birth? Have, have you gotten a taste of the, of the kingdom that is, of, of renewal that is coming in your own heart and life? Are you a new creation in Christ? Well, again, that's just the beginning. Christ is coming again. He, was, he is coming not just to complete our renewal, but to renew all of creation. In fact, creation is groaning and longing for the day when Jesus returns to renew all things. And when he returns, as this parable is telling us, when Christ returns and he finds his faithful servants ready for him, he will once again gird his loins. He will once again dress for action, dress for service. And he will tell us to sit down at the feast, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he will bring all of his infinite power and resources to place upon us honor and glory. We will be seated at the table. We will be welcomed into his family. We will be blessed with all the, the blessings that he can bestow upon his children for eternity. What a wonderful Savior is Jesus our Lord. Now you notice the last thing that Jesus says in verse 48. He says, uh, everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. Now as we think about this, as we remember the kingdom that is promised, and we remember the King Jesus who has served us and who will serve us, how much have we been given? How much have we been promised for the future? It is beyond our wildest imaginations. Words cannot do, do it justice. Our minds cannot comprehend it. If, if we have been given much and promised even more, then what should we do? What should we do? Well, 
we should gird up our loins, stay dressed for action, it says here, and keep our lamps burning. Be alert, be ready. Be like men who are waiting for their master to return. And be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And to be faithful, be faithful servants to the Lord, who will find us doing what He's asked us to do when He returns. May the Lord give us grace to be faithful servants, longing for and looking for His return, faithful all the way to the end. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, again we thank you for your word. We pray that you would impress it upon our hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be motivated by the wonderful and rich promises that you give us. Give us faith to to grasp those things and to believe those things and to live in light of those things. And Lord, may our hearts be melted by the great love with which you have loved us. We pray that we would see the great love demonstrated for us in Christ who gave his life a ransom for us. And may we love you because you first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.